it's almost as though you, your body turns inside out. It's, you know, it's, it's like this, the underlying awareness, which has been hidden, starts to emerge and literally swallows up your body consciousness. Welcome to Energy Matters, exploring awakening to your authentic self and finding purpose through mind, body, and soul. With your hosts, Cody Edner and David Gandelman. Brought to you by intuitivevision.net and groundedmind.com. Hey, Energy Matters listeners, welcome back to another episode. And we have a very special guest for you today. We hope that you have been meditating and if you haven't, Cody and I will know because we teach intuitive work. <laughs> Don't worry, you're not in trouble. We've got Sally Kempton on here to help us out. She's the author of numerous books, including Meditation for the Love of It. She writes a column for the yoga journal called Wisdom. Uh, she's been at this for over 40 years, and she teaches a certain kind of tantric practice that's incredibly fascinating. She lived in India for eight years. She spent an enormous amount of time living in ashrams and being a teacher. And we are graced with her presence today. I don't know if you're as excited as I am, Cody, but she's an incredible, incredible teacher. Yeah, very excited to have her on. She has such a, a huge body of work, uh, just her books alone, and not to mention the different audio versions of her teachings that you can get. I'm looking at the book, Awakening Shakti, uh, The Transformative Power of the goddess of yoga. I think that's a wonderful take on, you know, looking at the energy that comes through meditation, through yoga, through a deep uh, devotional practice that she talks about. So very excited to speak with her and get to know her. And if, as always, guys, if you want to hear all the episodes of the Energy Matters podcast, you can go to energymatterspodcast.com. Sally Kempton, everyone, let's go for it. Energy Matters listeners and YouTube viewers, we have a very special guest today, the legendary spiritual and meditation teacher, Sally Kempton. Welcome, Sally. So good Thank to have you. Thank and of you, course, David. Cody. Hi, Hi, Cody. Hello. Hi, Cody. Hello. 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 Uh, so nice so, to be with you guys. Yeah, so, so nice to have you. And we've been exploring your books, which you have so many, and your YouTube videos and all of your work. And Cody and I were just discussing before you got here how impressed we are with your body of work. And you've been teaching it for, it sounds like, over 40 years at this point. Yeah. Um, and for those who are listening who are maybe new to your work and or maybe have been meditating but haven't been fully exposed to all of the cool stuff that you've been doing all these years, can you just start off by telling us a bit about what it is that you teach, maybe in particular a devotional contemplative tantra and what that means? Yeah, yeah. I, I teach, well, the, the basic um, tr teaching of Tantra, which is, of course, fairly pervasive in the modern world, is an understanding about energy as the basis of everything and a recognition that in meditation especially, it's really important to be inclusive in terms of what we allow into our meditation. So, so in classical yogic meditation, the idea is to make your mind as still as possible. And the general, which is, which is of course a great instruction, but for most people, it's quite daunting since actually getting your discursive mind to shut up entirely is uh, very difficult, takes a long time, uh, involves a lot of repression, suppression. So sleeping pills. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> sleeping pills. Um, yes, knocking, your, knocking yourself on the head. Quaaludes, yeah. <laughs> uh, other, other perhaps not so healthy alternatives. Yeah. So, it, so the, the, for me, the life transform, well, there were two life transforming kind of interventions that came into my meditation. One was a transmission of Shakti from my teacher, which is very much the basis of the meditation I teach that it's, you know, it's based on the understanding that when you meditate in the presence of someone who, whose own meditation has cooked, has opened, has brought about awakening, then there's a lot of help and transmission that comes, uh, you know, to someone who practices with, with, a, with a teacher who, who kind of 
uh, has a lineage mojo. And that was how I learned meditation from a very powerful enlightened teacher. And the second piece of it that, that I've found very important is, is really this inclusive understanding about your own mind, your own awareness, uh, as, as really the microcosmic form of the creative intelligence that's, that is all that is. And if you understand your mind to be, to be basically made of energy, made of shakti, as we call it, then you can look at your thoughts, you can look at your images, you can look at all the stuff that, that comes up in when we're especially first getting into meditation. You can look at it all as being part of your meditation, as being held in the awareness of your meditation. And this, this attitude, which I consider the foundational tantric meditation attitude, this attitude uh, seems to remove the the uh, the overstructuring the um, you know the kind of fear the feeling that you that you're maybe doing it wrong uh, helps to create a, a field within which meditation can be both dynamic and still. Mm. So so that that recognition that everywhere your mind as as the tantric text says everywhere your mind goes is shakti everywhere your mind goes is divine conscious energy. Therefore, even though, uh, you know, mind hygiene, mental hygiene, positive thinking, all of those interventions are really helpful and positive. At a certain point, it, it, it's, it's really necessary to understand that your meditation can encompass whatever arises, still be meditation. And that seems to be what lets us go deep. When you talk about that, it makes me think of something I see happen a lot in meditators, which is when they start to meditate, it's not an all-inclusive sense of self that they're stepping into, but yeah. trying to get rid of or fix, like, I become the project, I'm the problem, or certain parts of me are, and that level yeah. of meditation, uh, while there may be some benefit in self-discovery, it also seems to... Um, kind of work against us on, on some levels. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I, I do think that most of us begin meditation as part of our ongoing self-improvement project. That's you right. know, one of the, one of the, one of the main motivations for doing any kind of inner work. And it's a good thing. Uh, at, but many years can go by while you try to fix yourself, improve your meditation, <laughs> feel discouraged about it. Uh, mm. at, whereas if you just, well, uh, I'll tell you um, the moment that really changed it for me. My, my, my teacher, whose name was Swami Muktananda, who was a, one of the first enlightened Indian teachers to, to come to the West in the 70s. And he, once when we were, he was leading meditation, and he said, you have to stop chasing the mind, trying to get rid of thoughts. Your mind is a... It's, a, it's simply a limited form of the creative consciousness that creates infinite worlds. And therefore, your mind is going to create infinite worlds on the inside. So the, the way to look at them is to say, everything that arises in my mind is an aspect of Shakti. And he was a devotional tantrika, so he would say, it's an aspect of goddess. So if you look at your mind as goddess, and everything that arises in it as being part of goddess, then your attitude towards your mind will automatically become more naturally reverent and your mind will start to behave. Your mind will start to give you a break. And I've found this to be true. You have to remember it. I mean, you can't use it as an excuse to just you know, let yourself ruminate indefinitely. Uh, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a particular type of intervention where you, you, you kind of loosen the reins, but you look at what's coming up in your mind as an aspect of sacred energy. And somehow this, this seems to loosen the attachment, you know, the, the tendency to follow thoughts, the tendency to get taken out by thoughts that we don't find acceptable. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it seems to, it, you know, I, I think so much of meditation is relaxing into the field of awareness. Yeah. So, if you can find a way to have a relaxed attitude without, uh, without being completely lax in your attention, in other words, to be attentive, 
yet deeply relaxed, your meditation is going to be far more satisfying than if you're simply being attentive or simply being relaxed. Right. Yeah. And I think when a lot of people first learn meditation, they see it as like turning the mind down and almost holding it hostage into silence. And yeah. what you're saying your teacher taught you and what you've come to realize is that you want to almost treat the mind as this goddess energy. I've never heard it that way. I really like that. Yeah. But yeah. you know, treating it as a sacred space rather than yeah. something to say, hey, shut up. Right. <laughs> conquer, something to command yeah. and conquer, yeah. And that's that, that, that point that Cody made, that don't yeah. treat your mind as something to command and conquer. Yeah. Treat your mind as, honor your mind, you know. It's, yeah. yes. Sally, how did you get there? How did, you, how did this start for you? Well, uh, I had a fairly typical for my generation spiritual awakening in that it, it, it happened during an acid trip uh, when I was in my 20s. And uh, it was actually the first time I'd ever taken acid. It was, I was having one of the usual, you know, highly visual acid trips. And then I was listening to a record to a, to a um, actually a, an incredible string band record. If you know that band from the 70s and 80s, kind of an eccentric English folk band. And they were singing... Well, they're worth they're worth hearing. They're funky, but but oh. kind of wonderful. And they were singing a song, the lyrics of which went, "This moment is different than any before it," which you know is of course a great spiritual cliche. But I was on acid, and it just went right into my heart. <laughs> and and I suddenly the you know presence opened, and I realized that everything is made of love. So I turned to my boyfriend and I said, "Oh my God, there's only love." He said, haven't you ever taken acid before? <laughs> so, so, but, I, it, it, but that, uh, it, it completely shifted my understanding about life. And, you know, like, like many people who, whose first guru was a psychoactive drug, it was the beginning. You know, I, I came down, uh, as one does, but with the recognition that, that my life could have a different set of priorities. I heard you tell this story before in more detail where you mentioned that you, correct me if I'm wrong, where you sensed the entire universe inside of you. That was a different experience. Okay. I, had a, I had a few different kinds of awakening, uh, including a, a sort of classic recognition of, you know, of, the, of, of my true nature as pure witness awareness and, uh, you know, seeing that that what I thought, thought of as me was actually not me. And, th and I had that experience that you described, which I describe in my book, uh, Meditation for the Love of It, which happened at an early retreat with my teacher, mm. um, where the, we were sitting in meditation and my awareness just became, uh, sort of swallowed everything. I think a lot of people, especially of the generation, like your generation, have had acid trips, but that doesn't lead, and they've had maybe awakenings, but that doesn't lead everybody to pursue a spiritual path and seek out a teacher. Um, were you already spiritually minded or just inquisitive? What, what kind of got you really moving from that moment of, you know, an awakening to take action and pursue it and learn more and, and do what you've done? Uh, a really good question. I, I mean, it, it, uh, I wasn't spiritually minded, at least not that I knew of. Mm -hmm. um, that I think that the social political situation of that time had a lot to do with it. As it, you know, I, I see the current political situation as being not being really a, a slightly more evolved repeat of what was going on in the early seventies when I had my first awakening. That is to say, the left had you know kind of splintered deeply post-1968, Nixon was president. Um, you know, we were moving into Watergate. There was intense disillusionment, at least in my circles, about political possibilities. And that had been uh, kind of the center of my belief system was that, you know, that uh, progressive political action was the, you know, the most important thing you could do other than art. Uh, since I was a writer. Sounds familiar so, to right now. <laughs> don't you think? It's, yeah. It, yeah I, I, I would say this, is, this moment reminds me so much of my early days of awakening. So it was almost as though uh, 
the disillusionment with life as I had known it, combined with that opening into love and opening of, you know, of, of deeper possibilities just really turned my life around. It was a kind of a classic, what William James calls conversion experience. You know, I, I fell off my donkey and, <laughs> and saw the light. And, and it, at that time, uh, the only, I mean, strangely enough, there was a 14-year-old guru who was kind of a joke in New York at the time living across the street from me. Wow. Uh, and, and there was Swami Satchidananda's yoga studio a couple of blocks away on 13th Street. And, you know, and a few other, and, and, you know, of course, there were many Buddhists and other small groups of teachings in, in New York, but nothing that I knew of that spoke to me. And so I ended up getting involved in it with a Western spiritual group that, uh, called Arika that, that actually taught a very integrated view of what spiritual progress is about, including, you know, philosophy yoga, physical practice, meditation practice, uh, mantra practice. And, it's, and I, I spent about a year and a half there, and it gave me what I consider a very, very, very good education in the, the different components of spiritual work and sort of held me while I went through these initial processes. And at, that, at a certain point, I had another awakening which involved... Uh, you know, a huge infusion of light and a sense of Kundalini rising from the base mm. of my spine up to the crown. And it was very disconcerting, actually, uh, you know, as because I, I really didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and in the middle of that experience, I heard my, my, I heard the name of Swami Muktananda, who was a recognized Kundalini master not kundalini yoga in the yogi bhajan sense, but the more traditional, uh, you know, kundalini yoga of a, what's often called a siddha tradition, a lineage of gurus who, who have the capacity to awaken students. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I, he, he happened to be coming to Los Angeles where I was living and he, I went to see him and ended up uh, spending the next 29 years <laughs> with him and in his wow. lineage. Incredible. Very cool. Yeah. S- Sally, for those who are listening, watching, going, I'm going to have an awakening experience like that. I guess the question is, where can they get the acid? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, ask Michael Pollan. <laughs> That's true. He's in connection. That's right. I saw him on Colbert talking about that. Yeah. Uh, but more seriously, for those who maybe their awakening isn't going to come from uh, taking acid or something like that, but they're looking for that opening. What would you suggest to a student like that? Oh, really good question. Um, I mean, there is the, the classic advice, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Uh, I, I do think that what you have to do is just get started. And mm-hmm. because I, I belong to, a, you know, to traditions that really really privilege the role of the subtle meditative energy that we call Shakti in the meditation process. I would always suggest that people get involved with a teacher or a tradition that also recognizes Shakti. And many of these are in uh, Hatha Yoga lineages because Hatha Yoga, uh, you know, not all Hatha Yoga, obviously, but, but there, are, there are some Hatha Yoga lineages which work with Shakti and where that type of awakening takes place. And there are also teachers who, you know, in, in what's currently called the direct path, Ramana Maharshi tradition, which I'm sure you've had several of those teachers on this show who, you know, who, who help people awaken. I would, I call it the intellectual center awakening where you, which, which was one of my early awakenings where you recognize that what you think is me is actually uh, not me. That you know that which you see the difference between the the small self egoic sense mm-hmm. of who you are and the deep awareness that is ever the ever present who you really are that kind of awakening which I think is more common uh, in the Western world these days correct me if I'm wrong about this but it's what I hear about uh, seems to you know it there there seem to be a number of lineages 
certainly in California, um, that in which you can sit with a teacher who will kind of talk you into recognizing consciousness as the, as the truth and in which you, you might have the opportunity to get it. Uh, and that's a very good start as long as you don't, uh, as long as you don't get stuck in, in a merely intellectual uh, recognition of your, yourself as consciousness, as long as you really allow it to become embodied. Can you explain that a little bit? What that looks like if so someone knows like am i stuck how do i know if i'm stuck what is that what does that stuck look like i think recognizing your own stuckness is not not always that easy which is why teachers and peers and um, reading is is very useful uh, but there's a type of spirituality in which our intention is to rise above and beyond our mundane life to disengage from the body to to experience what you know in the kundalini tradition we call the upper chakras so mm -hmm. so uh and and that 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 uh approach to practice will often get you to the point where you can recognize your own awareness you can sort of pull back from your mind and from your body and especially from your emotional problems and realize that you are, I always do this when I describe this, that there is this, you know, this field, that this holding field, which often can feel very loving and embracing, and which, which is filled with, with okayness. It's, um, it, it's stable, it's ever-present. You recognize that this, this is the deepest sense of you that you've ever had, and that, uh, and you, that you've had it all your life, and you can you get to a point, and I'm sure you, you know, you know this from experience, where you can just, you can de-identify with your, your physical, empirical, personal, personal self, and identify yourself as the awareness that holds and is present to experience. And this is an extremely satisfying place to park. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, where you get stuck is, well, first of all, thinking that you, you know, you have it together, which is, which yeah. is always a mistake, I find. I tried yeah. to convince Cody that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, it also, it, it is, um, it is a, a position that allows spiritual bypassing, that wonderful phrase that Chogyam Trungpa created. You know, that where you just, you know, you just go, okay, over, okay, I'm out of here. I'm done, <laughs> I am right. awareness. I'm completely detached from all Later. this. Can and, you play uh, the electric bill? Yes. It's like using that, the phrase, like, all is one or all is love as a way of denying what's real right in front of you exactly. and dealing with it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so uh, at a certain point, if you're not re-entering the body, if you're not actually moving down past the heart into the lower chakras and really investigating the emotions and the physical feelings and often the traumas that you're holding in your in the first three chakras and often in your heart mm -hmm. uh, then you know you're always going to be trying to escape your life and meditation is always going to be partly an escape valve and I, I all four escape valves, don't get me wrong. I think that, that being able to, you know, to, especially when you're in physical pain or emotional pain, to be able to go, okay, I am consciousness. <laughs> you know, I'm not this is really, really helpful. And I'm so grateful that, that I can do that. But I have found that there are deeper and deeper awakenings that, that become possible when you're willing to occupy your own body and to recognize that that your body itself has wisdom that, that, it, that the mind just can't even begin to, uh, to make you aware of. Okay. So, it and is so, intelligence in it, so it, many ways. It is intelligence. It is intelligence. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's instinct. It's, it's in, an instinctual understanding of what's right that you can learn to cultivate, but you can only learn to cultivate by, by practicing with it. You know, it's, mm -hmm. It's not the same as uh, as somebody going, okay, I'm just going with my feeling. It's more like actually learning to explore feelings and hold feelings and and really test the information 
And so you can learn to hear the signals for when the information that your body is giving you is, uh, is important and when it's just, you know, a passing thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there is, a, there is a difference I've noticed between feeling at the level of impulse versus feeling at the level of movement of, of energy, like following the flow of, it, of that intelligence, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I lived in an ashram and in India for a long time, and I thought I had it. <laughs> but if you had yeah. traveled back in time and found me in that ashram, you'd probably notice I was kind of floating above it all. Yeah. And there was a, a time. Not eating. Not, yeah, I hated eating to this day. Yeah. Eating kind of bothers me. Right. <laughs> but, I see you're quite slim. Yeah, like. I have to do it every day, multiple times. I know. And then I know. again oh. the next day. And all these other things that go along with it. With having a body. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you have to pay for the food. It's absurd. Uh, yeah. And you have need a place to sleep. And... The, the reason I don't eat is actually is just because I'm cheap. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you would definitely have noticed I was just kind of floating up there. And then I, and then I came back to the United States and realized, wow, I have to do all of these physical things and they're actually hard and I'm not good at them. And that's more of a challenge than just sitting and meditating. For me to sit and meditate all day was so easy. Yeah. It was almost easy to fall into this blissful state and just roll with it forever. And yeah. then I found all the other stuff harder. I think a lot of meditators out there hit this point as well. When, when did you hit that awareness? And what, it, what was that like for you? How did you navigate it? Well, I, I lived in an ashram for a long time and and eventually I became a Swami monk, which meant that I occupied a privileged position where other people did a lot of stuff for me. Oh, cool. <laughs> I want that. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in other words, other people did my laundry. Um, nice. Other people cooked my food. Wow. Uh, and, uh, it, it's, and I, at a, and I at a, eventually got to the point where I started thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm teaching people how to live their lives. And I'm living in this utterly privileged and, you know, kind of unreal situation in which everything is taken care of for me. And all I really have to do is give spiritual teachings and do my best to get along with other people, which is, of course, not always so easy. <laughs> Sounds good to me. How long did that take to, to get to that? I, I, I started being, feeling problematic to me. Um, uh, wow. It took a while, about... Uh, 15 years in and wow. and then I and part of it was because the you know the, the um and living in an ashram as you probably know especially if it's a large ashram <clears throat> and especially if there's a living teacher is quite challenging in many ways and uh, you know it's it's not like a it's not like a um Cistercian monastery where everybody's silent there is a lot of interactivity there's a lot of you know, interpersonal stuff that, mm. that you have to deal with. So the, you don't really feel like you're bypassing for a long time because you're so engaged in the challenges, you know, living in a community. And, mm. um, and also the work I did, which was, you know, challenging in itself. But so, but there, there just was a point at which I started, I actually started to feel this is hypocritical. I mean, I'm, I'm working with householders. I'm working with people who have to pay their bills, you know, who have, who have adolescents who are driving them crazy. And, and I'm, I'm living this life, which is, <coughs> which is entirely focused on, uh, you know, on obvious spiritual practice. Like, so it just it felt like it, it was like I, sh I needed to step back into the so-called world. And when I decided to travel with my teacher, which was a kind of an ad hoc um, decision that I didn't realize would turn into my entire life. I had made a promise to myself that I would, my guru was quite old, or at least I thought so at the time. Um, I'm now older than he was, but. Um, <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> old. Everyone's <laughs> old, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I thought, well, he won't be alive too long and it is a rare opportunity. So, and he very much encouraged me to, you know, to, to make this decision, but I, I remember saying, okay, I'm going to, um, I'm going to return and deal with all the things that I knew I hadn't dealt with 
So it just was, it was like a kind of a sort of Damocles or ticking time bomb that eventually I had to face into and that I knew I would have to face into because uh, I am, a, I'm an activist by nature. You know, I'm, I agree with, I agree with David. There's nothing greater than just sitting in meditation all day long. Yeah. Right. Turning around, doing little Zen sweeping. <laughs> like a cat. Right. Yeah. Like a human cat. Right. Right. <laughs> Right, but, but at a certain point, you sort of think, well, okay, I'm in this body to be a human being, and how am I going to, how am I going to be a deep meditator and practitioner, and also deal with the challenges of being a human being, and even in this, you know, relatively prosperous and pleasant circumstance. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think Cody and I definitely, well, well one of the challenges we've been tackling and working with is we've both been teaching for years, obviously him longer, you could tell. Uh, <laughs> but what well, we've been, you know, as a spiritual teacher on your own, when you're no longer part of a school or part of an ashram or a group, you have to build your own business and, you know, yeah. make your own students. And that's an entirely new thing to have to sure is. run that, run a, almost like a business, right? As a teacher, yeah. navigate that. And I've found that to be one of the most challenging aspects of it all, but also very fulfilling in, in, in making it work. I don't know about you. What have you noticed uh, in, in the more recent years as a teacher with all of that? Well, that's absolutely true. You know, you, that, that, that the challenge of, of actually um, finding the people that, that want to study with you yeah. um, and, and, you know, just managing communities yeah, mm -hmm. uh, is you know, is its own challenge, uh, and and it took me a while to find an mo that felt easeful for me and that didn't require a ton of marketing. Mm -hmm. So, because I'm not that great at it, you know, I, uh, at marketing. But most spiritual people aren't. Yes, <laughs> I have. Found. Yes, <laughs> you've noticed that too. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Although we do have this podcast, so that yes, is, you do. You know, that was a big thing. So how, what's that? Can you share, no. Sally, a little bit? Oh, sorry, Cody. I was just going to say, can you share yeah, that MO? What, what does that MO look like a little bit for you? How did you end up bringing that out into the world? Well, the big, the big thing for me is I think it is for many people in the spiritual teaching, coaching world was realizing that I could do classes online, or actually I don't do it so much online, but on the phone with people right. from all, all over the country and all over the world. So it meant that I didn't have to travel all the time and that I didn't have to have a scene where I lived, which having lived in an ashram for a long time and having been a public person in the ashram, such that you, you can't, you know, when you're in that kind of situation, you cannot walk out of your room without putting on your game face. You know, you, <laughs> right. you are actually on all the time. And uh, I, I'm quite introverted, so I, I, I live in essentially a retreat space and I don't teach where I live. So in other words, when I teach, it's usually at a conference center or, uh, you know, or online uh, or in a yoga studio and usually not, you know, not in my neighborhood. So, but the online teaching, which uh, has become quite large, I mean, large, you know, large enough. It's not, it's not massive, but it's, it's large enough so that people who, who are, uh, you know, who I have a karmic connection to can find me and I can make a reasonable living um, and don't have to, you know. Uh, on your uh, website? Where do, where it's on my website. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, my website, sallykempton.com has, at the, you know, on the top menu, it has this little section on schedule and there's, and it, that includes the teleclasses. I'm giving one now actually called uh, The Goddess Empowerment, which is about uh, how to connect and invoke Shakti in the form of several Hindu goddesses. But you're also a writer, and, and that and a being writer. a writer certainly gets your thoughts and, and ideas out there. I'm curious about you as a writer. Do you find writing as a meditative process? Is it, uh, is it a struggle? Has it always been there for you? Like, what is your, your process in writing, especially about spiritual topics? Um, well, yes, I, I would say I'm a writer more, you know, if I, if I would 
describe, if I could describe myself as only one thing, it would be as a writer. I've been writing since I was five. Wow. It's, nice. and, and when I was younger, it was the, it was the way I, I tuned into the self, to the, to the deeper truth of, of my being. Um, something about writing, usually fiction in those days, would, would kind of open up this, this space of enormous joy and contentment and inspiration. Um, and I, I love, I mean, but, and the problem was, I, then I was a professional journalist for a while, but I, I never, there, I, I just was not that interested in mundane things, I've subsequently realized. So learning that, I, you know, studying spirituality and yogic topics and realizing that I could write about them was a huge gift for me, actually. Mm. It's one of the things I'm really grateful for is that, is that it gave me uh, a way to write that felt in integrity with what I, what I love myself. So, so yes, it's, it, I, it's um, and deeply satisfying. And one of the things that I've learned about writing and spirituality is that writing or any form of art, any form of uh, anything that, that, that demands that you, you mine a deeper inspiration is a wonderful path to, you know, a meditative state. You can. Yeah. So I, I recommend writing as a path. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, even if you don't think you're good at it. Right. I've never been good at it, but I, I enjoy it. And we have a, we have a mutual friend, Ann Randolph, who's a writing teacher. Yes. If you guys yes. ever get a chance, do a retreat with Ann Randolph if you want to write. Although I, I went on one of her retreats, and I wasn't told that it was an improv retreat. All of a sudden, I'm on stage moving around going, ah, this is scary. Yeah, except David sent me a little video of like his first stand-up, because he's yeah. like a... a comedian at heart. I had to do a little oh, yes. comedy for Ann Randolph. Was, was oh, fantastic. That's great. That's yeah. so great. <clears throat> it was cool. Oh, we know we have another mutual friend uh, or oh, acquaintance. Sure. I don't know how well you know him, but John <laughs> McKeever, he owns Pilgrimage of the Heart Yoga. And we saw you on his podcast. He's a friend of mine in San Diego. Yeah. Guy. Yeah, he was yeah. on our show early on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sweet guy. Yeah, very, very lovely guy. Yeah. yeah. Sally, I have a question. So a lot of our audience, they're listening on Insight Timer or through iTunes, wherever, and they're, they may be used to doing these like 10, 15, 20-minute guided meditation, beginner stuff, watching the breath, maybe letting the mind settle. You, you tend to be somebody to take people into the deep end. So the question is, for those listening who you know, are used to doing 10, 20-minute meditations, kind of lightly guided, beginner ones, are looking for that kind of next step into the deeper part of the pool, into that deeper level layer of consciousness. It, what do you teach in terms of taking someone into that space? Do you teach them how to become aware of that Kundalini energy kind of moving up through the body or how does, how does it work? Well, I would say the go-to meditation that I teach is on the Sushumna Nadi, the central channel and, and on the three centers, the, 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 Muladhara belly center, the hara, uh, the heart, and the the center uh, in the middle of the head. So, what I, I I teach a particular set of practices which allow people to enter into the central channel, which is, you know, in 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 the yoga texts. Do should I explain this or? Yeah, sure. And maybe talk a little bit about the three centers too, because I don't know that any of us really know what that is. So, yeah. Well. The, in, you know, in the yogic tradition and in, actually in most of the Eastern yogic traditions, there's, there's the understanding that the subtle energy body, which permeates, pervades the physical body, but also extends at least three feet beyond it, you know, actually has its own geography that corresponds to the physical body, corresponds to the organs, corresponds to the endocrine system and to the spinal column and the cerebral spinal fluid in the physical body. And the you know in in the chakra in the seven chakra system, which is the one that we're we are most uh, familiar with in the West, you know, there's the understanding that there are seven vortexes, um, one at the base of the body, one in one in the center of the pelvic area, one in the so generally navel solar plexus area, one in the heart, one in the throat, one in the 
center of the head. It's between the eyebrows, but inside, not in the forehead, and then one above the crown. And what, what I discovered, and, and this is not my personal discovery, it's an understanding that is many spiritual teachers come to, have come to, is that the, the three main centers uh, are the, you know, what's what in martial arts is called the hara, the belly, right. the heart, and the center, uh, in the, the center in the head. And that if you activate these three centers, it basically activates all of your subtle bodies. Um, it activates your, your inner being at, at many, several different levels. Uh, and I can tell you what I feel that these centers hold in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, what gets activated when you when you really tune into them, but but these the centers are connected along the subtle spinal column, which uh, in which the yoga tradition says is interpenetrated by three very very subtle channels called the ida, the pingala, and the sushumna or central channel. The ida and pingala correspond to the nostrils, and they are the pathways that that the breath in which, which the breath and the prana move into the body and they but between them is is this much more subtle and difficult to reach channel called the sushumna which means something like auspicious or you know overmind channel there are different definitions of it as with many sanskrit words but uh there is this in in the in the yoga tantric tradition it's said that the when we go into a true meditative state, a true samadhi state, uh, what is actually happening is that our breath uh, stops moving through these two normal channels and goes into the sushumna. And at that point, very often, the breath becomes very slow and stops. And this inner space, the space of the inner body begins to expand. And you find yourself in a let's call it a non-ordinary state or in a meditative state, in, a, in the state of expanded awareness. Mm. But it's deeply embodied. You know, it's, it's not affected by the body. It's like it's free of the body, but it's inside the body. And, uh, and the Sushumna Nadi can become, it, it's almost as though you, your body turns inside out. It's, you know, it's, it's like this, the underlying awareness which has been hidden, starts to emerge and literally swallows up your body consciousness. And it, what, the way the, the yogic tradition that I'm part of describes this is, is, is it's, they say that it's all about entering the sushumna, the central channel. So I teach a meditation that's, and I teach it as a beginning meditation because you can approach it at whatever level of, of expertise you have acquired. Right. Uh, in, in which we practice with the breath, begin by breathing with the sense that you're breathing in and out of the forehead and find this center in the middle of the head and then begin to breathe vertically. So letting the breath flow down to the heart and back up and then down to the, to the hara, to the center of the belly and back up to the heart. And as you practice this way, your mind settles. You know, it's a very good concentrative practice. But eventually, uh, the the sushumna opens, and you you find yourself in in meditation in in the state of dhyana, which I define as the spontaneous arising of the meditative state, which I know you're very familiar with. So when you're meditating in the sushumna, you it's like you you catch on to the wave of deeper your deeper being, and and the practice begins to be spontaneous, and you're carried as far inside as you as you can be present for you know which obviously uh, if you're if you you haven't meditated a lot your capacity to stay inside is less than if you've practiced a lot but mm -hmm. it's a beginning practice that that can become an extremely advanced practice because it at a certain point you surrender to the currents of energy and and they take you deeper and deeper into your subtle self so, and I also teach a lot of, uh, of visualizations. I mean, I do teach, I teach a lot of devotional mantra practice and 
goddess invocation practice uh, and, you know, guided journeys. So, and, and a certain amount of what they currently call non-dual practice, that is being aware of awareness. So right. I, have a, I have a fairly wide spectrum of ways I teach meditation. I love that. Yeah, that's great. Well, over 40 years of practice and exploration, I'm sure you have tremendous deep knowledge to share in a lot of different arenas. That's really wonderful. Well, I experience it, as I suspect you guys do as well. I do experience meditation as a recreational activity as well as yeah. as a practice that, you know, that transforms you very deeply. So I like to meditate. And, and, uh, and I think it's, and I, I've found as a teacher, as I'm sure you have also, that one size really doesn't fit all. Right. So, and your mindfulness is not for everybody. Uh, you know, concentrative meditation is not for everybody. Visual meditation is not for everybody. Mantra is not for everybody. But if we play, we find what hooks you, you know, what makes you want to meditate. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I love the title of one of your books, Meditation for the Love of It, is is a great title and statement that you you do it because you en enjoy it. I, I like that. It's great. Yeah. I don't enjoy it. I can't imagine you'd continue. Right. Exactly. It's hard to continue exactly. something. You don't find some aspect of it or some form or expression of it where you can be in a place of enjoying it. Yeah. 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 I know for yeah. me, um, so I had a degree in philosophy. I moved to the Himalayas. And so, I was, you know, I was a meditator, but I was intellectual. And so the Vedantic form and teaching was very attractive to me because it was so logical and such a straight shot to, you know, what seemed like enlightenment. And I read all these, you know, Ramana Maharshi books and went down to the ashram and Nisagarartha uh, and all of that. And I, and I absolutely loved it. And then I got into more of the kind of healing, intuitive side of things as well. And I moved to Hawaii, started feeling guilt. That I was supposed to be right. Now this one's right. And, and then other one practices I got into, and I realized there was always something missing in that equation, yeah. which was me. <laughs> yes. So, right. yes. That's a good way to put it. That's a great way to put it. Yes. <laughs> like, what, what do I think? What, what yeah. works for me? It took me years yeah. to ask that question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Who great. am I? I mean, really, who am I? I'm this Vedantic right. nothingness. Uh, yeah. That's the way. Yeah. Yeah. Are you writing any more books? Um, I am. I'm. I, I'm about to. I'm about to start another book, but I'm not revealing what it's about because I. It's not fully cooked, but it's it's along the lines of the Awakening Shakti book. Uh, you know, it's a, it's uh, it's a book about higher energies and how they work inside human beings. Nice. Yeah. Are there other spiritual teachers alive that you look up to or you still enjoy listening to? Well, I do like Adyashanti, who I think is, um, and I like Rupert yeah. Spira. Um, and uh, I haven't really visited any of the current wave of, uh, of charismatic Indian female teachers, although I hear that some of them are quite extraordinary. Um, but I think that there are a lot of really, really skilled spiritual teachers around who, who, you know, I benefit from having satsang, having satsang with them. I, I've, I haven't met a teacher that I want to enter into the kind of relationship that I had with, with my guru. Um, partly because he, he, was, he was so big and so kind of all-encompassing that I've never met anybody who has that quality mm. so uh but i i do think that there's there is enormous spiritual opportunity around these days yeah definitely yeah yeah well back when you started back when i started uh <laughs> there it wasn't like on every corner we didn't have the internet it was you had to kind of search around quite a bit to find a teacher and a teaching you know yeah, you did. And you often had to go to India or go to Nepal. Mm -hmm. Sally, for those listening and wondering, how does Sally meditate? What does her day look like? What does a spiritual meditation teacher spend their time doing? <laughs> Give us just a little tiny bit of insight. 
<laughs> well, I do a couple of hours of practice in the morning, which includes not that much yoga, just because my body's not handling it too well right now. Um, a, a certain amount of of puja, of ritual. You know, in other words, I I do a little a little um, classical worship offering practice at an altar with chanting mantras, and then I sit for depending on how much time I have between an hour and two hours. Uh, and, uh, and then I putter around, go to work, and then I meditate again. Usually, usually in the evening, you know, like for half hour or an hour or more if I get really into it um, before I go to bed. So, and the rest of the time I'm, you know, doing life. Uh, I, just, right. I just did a retreat, which was more of a, I, did, I just want to stop traveling retreat in which I spent a lot of time just wandering around cooking and straightening my house and s sitting on the deck, spacing out. And, <laughs> and that was great. Uh, <laughs> so That's you wonderful. can call it open-eyed meditation. I, I just, I call it spacing out. <laughs> right. So creativity yeah. comes in, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it really does. It really does. So fascinating. For all the meditators listening to this, going, well, I want to do more with Sally. I want to listen to her teachings, her meditations. Where can they find you? I know we have sallykempton.com, which is probably the home of most of it. Yes. Uh, and then you also have, I'll just speak for you. <laughs> I know you have Kirpalu yeah. August 24th coming up. You're going to be yes. there August 24th to the 26th, which is in Massachusetts. You guys haven't been there. It's a beautiful retreat center. And then you're also teaching November 14th to December 12th. That's almost a month worth on death and dying. And yeah, where is that, that one going to be? That's a teleclass. So that's, <clears throat> on, that's, that's online. Okay. Uh, and uh, let me, and I'm, I'll also, let's see what else I can tell you. I, well, my website has, I actually have teleclasses available f for download on my, oh, cool. on, from my website on a lot of them on texts of Kashmir Shaiva Tantra. So the, the, uh, the, the alternative to Vedanta philosophy, the, the non-dual uh, tantric philosophy called Kashmir Shaivism, which is- oh, Before we finish, can you explain that? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, well, um, you know, the, the difference between Vedanta and the Shaiva viewpoint is it is that in Vedanta that the fundamental teaching, as you know, is the, the physical world is a superimposition on consciousness and is therefore not quite real. Mm -hmm. uh, in Kashmir Shaivism, the understanding is that the physical universe is, is appearing and dissolving inside this vast field of intelligence called Shakti or Chitti, which is the feminine form of the word awareness. And that therefore every particle of the world is full of sacred energy. So, well, the, the sages of this tradition claim that they are the true non-dualists. In other words, that they don't make a separation between the world and the world and spirit. They see spirit in all of it. Mm. And uh, it's, it's a tradition that was supported by the kings of Kashmir from between the, the 8th and uh, 11th century. And that has disappeared from Kashmir, obviously, when the Muslims took over and even before, but it's been, it's in the late, in the mid 20th century, uh, several European and American scholars kind of discovered the texts, which are really quite extraordinary. Um, as, as I suspect you, you know, uh, very beautiful, poetic, radical. Uh, and it's begun to, you know, to be a thing in the, in the modern spiritual world. My teacher was one of those who kind of brought Kashmir Shaivism into, into the, the conversation in India and in the West. Wow. Um, so I teach, a, I, I, teach a cert, I, I teach a lot from those texts. That sounds, and correct, I could be very wrong, but when you describe that, that sounds an awful lot like kind of the idea of the holographic universe where everything is in every piece and you yeah know. yeah very yeah very similar and david bohm's analysis of of the holographic universe is very very much applies to the way that kashmir shaiva sages saw it 
Yeah, interesting. David Bohm was a physicist, I believe, physicist, worked yeah. under Albert Einstein for a while. He did, and he was a student of Krishnamurti. Right. I've yeah. seen their talks together on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, they're amazing, and I wish I was smart enough to fully follow them. <laughs> I, I understand. I know. He's over my head, too. <laughs> yeah. Incredible work. And, I mean, that's another place where everyone can find you, which is where I've seen a lot of your work, which is on YouTube. You have some yeah. great talks on there. And also on Yoga Glow, which, Yoga is a, Glow. which I have about 60 meditations on the Yoga Glow site, which is... Wonderful. And, uh, and on Gaia, I've done a couple of things there recently. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. You're hanging out on the deck, uh, having hanging your retreat, and you're everywhere. <laughs> I know. All at once. <laughs> yes. Isn't, isn't the virtual world amazing? Yes. Yes. It is. Well, Sally Kempton, it's been so wonderful having so you. Delightful. Yeah. So delightful. Yeah. Well, we have to reverse it. I have to interview you guys. We'd love it. Oh, we'd love hear, it. Hear, hear, hear your yeah. stories. Definitely. No, I, it's totally been a pleasure. Thank yeah. you. And Likewise. for everyone listening and watching, thank you all for hanging with us this whole time. I'm sure you got a lot out of this. Uh, you can find Sally at sallykempton.com and all of her books on Amazon. There's a wealth of teaching there. So uh, enjoy yourselves. Keep meditating and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank see you so much. Thank you, David. Thank you, Cody. Thank you for your work. It's, it's very, very beautiful what you're doing. Hey everybody, that was Sally Kempton and I can safely say I don't know that we've ever gone that deep in, down the path of meditation and what it is and how to meditate as, as she just went. That was really fascinating to uh, hear about the different centers and the depth of going inward that uh, Sally's able to talk about, articulate. And, and really just give a great kind of picture of, uh, I had a really, really great time listening to that and really kind of contemplating and looking at my meditation practice in, in a new way after talking to her. Yeah, now we have to re-record our daily OM chakra series because she taught <laughs> us an entirely new tool of connecting the Hara that solar plexus space to the heart to the third eye that was a really powerful teaching that she had there for us and you know there are so many spiritual teachers out there meditation teachers who some of them talk like they're talking out of a textbook sally kimpton is not one of them she talks purely from experience and i love that i never feel like she's just hitting me with information that she learned from someone else it's always it feels like this true natural wisdom and uh, I really appreciate that about her. And she has an incredible sense of humor, lightness, uh, humility to her. And uh, I think a lot of us inspire to get to that place after 40 years of that kind of work. So thank you, Sally, for being here. And if you guys want to find her, sallykempton.com would be the place. There's another place called Amazon. You can get her books there. <laughs> I've never uh, heard of that. Amazon, is it? Yeah. If you get Amazon Prime, Enlightenment. <laughs> Come, comes with Amazon Prime. That's right. Yeah. And uh, she's going to be teaching at Kripalu coming up. And she's got lots of great stuff going on online. We so appreciate her time. I feel every episode we do, I'm like, how the hell do we get to interview these amazing I know. Uh, it's like I never so would lucky. get to meet this person. Yeah. <laughs> do you know how not cool we are and, uh, that you're here anyway? <laughs> They have a special place in their heart for it, you right. know. <laughs> they do this is they do the scholarship type of podcast. Yes. Uh, this is pro bono work. Sally <laughs> yeah. Sally does this on Sundays. <laughs> so thank you guys for listening. As always, you can find us at energymatterspodcast.com, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, a little bit of Facebook. YouTube now, which is so exciting. Um yeah. It's great to see it's so us easy. out on YouTube. It's so easy yeah. to access and you can see the video. So if you're listening to this by audio, you can do the video. If you so, want to see just how goofy we really are, watch us on YouTube. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time on Energy Matters. Enjoy yourselves. Keep meditating. See you, everybody. You've been listening to the Energy Matters podcast with Cody Edner and David Gandelman. 
brought to you by intuitivevision.net and groundedmind.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or soundcloud.com.